This podcast is brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Lee Simon, and you're listening to Gavin Woods Podcast. Australian media personality, top radio DJ, rock television presenter, radio content director, and first to bring football broadcasts to FM radio. My podcast guest is my friend and colleague, Lee Simon. Lee, welcome to the chat. Hello, Gavin. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Now, you and I have done a lot in our careers, and I'm very happy to explore the Lee Simon story. Now, where were you born? I was born in East Melbourne, which I think was the Mercy Hospital. Uh Uh-huh. To Greek immigrant parents. Now, they came out. How old were they when they came out to Australia, mum and dad? My dad was 24 when he came out, and that was in 1927. So he was one of the uh, original Greeks who just decided in his early 20s that there was a whole world out there, and um, he jumped on a boat with a bunch of other similar guys who became lifelong friends of his and business partners of his over the journey. Mum was 26, and that was in 1950. So he met a young girl. What happened was after the war, Dad went back to Greece looking for a bride. Mum happened to walk past at a particular time when he was sitting at a cafe (laughs) with a couple of other people, and he decided that's the woman I'm going to marry, and that's how it turned out. It's incredible when you think about your parents and how pioneering they were. Now, they wouldn't have known a, you know, a lick of English, and they came to a foreign country to learn the language and to uh, live uh, as Greek Australians. It was such a... I, I mean, you and I, I, I know I couldn't do it. In Mum's case, Mum uh, spoke, read and wrote English comfortably. When she came out here, she learned that at school, so... The English language wasn't an issue for mum, and I'm not too sure about dad, but uh, he certainly didn't struggle with the English language. But the only thing that he did as a nod to where he was now living was change his name from what it was to what it became, which was John Simon. And he did so because at that time, Australia wasn't necessarily a very user-friendly country for people who came from certain parts of the world other than England, Scotland and Ireland. I know, yes, we were very snobby, but it it was wonderful. Uh, Once we realised that you brought all this culture with you, beautiful food, great restaurants, all of a sudden the Italians and the Greeks became really, really cool. Well, about time too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, tell me about your early school days. How were they and where were they held at? Okay, well, I grew up in North Baldwin, which for some reason a few years ago changed to to Baldwin North. Yes, grew up in Fortuna Avenue in North Baldwin. My parents were smart enough to realise that little ones pick up languages very quickly, so they deliberately only spoke Greek at home for my sister Diana and myself. So when I started primary school at North Baldwin Primary School, I couldn't speak a word of English, so I was the quiet one. Six months later, I learnt enough English to be confident to uh, to go with it. And from that point on, Gavin, uh, every school report that I had uh, had the euphemism participates actively in class discussions, which is a euphemism for talks too much. And also learning the English language as you go. Well, did that television helped, as did being amongst English-speaking people. So weirdly, English is actually my second language, even though I was born here. 
and thankfully I can still get by with my uh, my first language. Oh, that's good. So your birth name was? Vasily is my first name, and uh, the surname was Simon. Dad had changed it to Simon before he even got married. So I've got the somewhat unusual mixed name, which is Vasilis Simon, which is also also means I'm condemned to always having it um, jotted down incorrectly on official forms. The amount of times I get something addressed to Mr. Vasilis, dear Simon, hello, blah 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 blah. When did you change it to Lee? When you got into radio? The formal version of my name is Vasilios. Ordinarily, that becomes Bill. Uh, when it's anglicised, Vasily is the same as William in English. My parents went for the last syllable, which was the Leos part. So I was Leo. I was Leo Simon growing up at, at Northbourne Primary and at Baldwin High. And in fact, my first job in radio at 3AW, I was Leo Simon. And it wasn't until I started working on air and I was told that four syllables were too many. I needed to shake one off. You'll recall that uh, ethos as well. So Leo had one letter dropped off the end of it and Leo became Lee, Lee Simon. Well, there you go. And the rest, as they say, is rock and roll history. Yes, and very confusing when it comes to bank documents, passports and all sorts of other things. Let's move on now. Siblings, uh, you've just got uh, your sister, Diana. My sister, Diana, who I refer to as my younger sister, my little sister, regardless of whether or not she may or may not be. And then there's my brother, Phil, who came along six years after uh, after me. Phil, who we all worked together. We, we did. Phil decided he wanted to work in television, and when he finished his education, he went and worked at Channel 10, but was kind of drawn to radio because Big Brother worked in radio, and he was very familiar with what went on with that. He did some part-time work with us, in the earlier days of Eon FM, just you know, a bit of freelance casual work doing audio and went on to become a producer and has for a very, very long time been part of the working dog family and continues to be. Yeah, now he's one of the hot guns in the city. Now, I know you're learning bass guitar. Did you always want to be back then a rock star? Not really. In fact, for when I was 8 till 16, I learned classical piano, and that was my exposure to music at that particular time. But a few years prior to me walking away from the piano, a little band called The Beatles came along, which completely turned my head around, as it did for so many other people of my generation. And then not long after that, a young guy called Stevie Winwood, he opened my eyes to the fact that you could be a keyboard player and be in a band. It never changed the fact, though, that the keyboard player always looks a little bit awkward in a band. They, they, they can't quite pose as much as guitarists and drummers can. They, they seem to get tucked away a little bit behind the front line. Well, they get tucked away, and then as it ends up, they typically become the musical director of the band because they typically are the ones who can read and write music and do arrangements and do all, all of that sort of stuff. I still have a little tinkle on the piano, very badly, but the muscle memory from all those years ago still applies, so I can do my scales and I can read music. But I've always been a fan of bass and drums. Anytime I went and saw a band playing live, I was never that fascinated by, you know, the, the skills of a lead guitarist or anybody else on the stage. It was always the rhythm section. And a few years ago, I decided to do something about it and went and bought myself a bass guitar and I sort of 
plunk around on that with a mate of mine and enjoy it thoroughly. Uh, did I want to be a rock star? No. Did I get into radio because I wanted to be a musician, but I wasn't good enough? No. In fact, I stumbled into radio without the intention of doing what I ended up doing. Well, let's talk about that. Your early formative years. Uh, did you enjoy growing up in Baldwin and going to dances and all of that as a as a young teen? Loved growing up in North Baldwin and as I grew older, more and more people of my ethnic persuasion moved into the area so I wasn't as one out as I was in the earlier years. I was a little bit too young to pick up on the racism that existed in a very uh, white Presbyterian Protestant suburb as North Baldwin was. Infamously a dry suburb, still is. There's no pubs there. It wasn't until the Sentimental Bloke Hotel opened in Bulleen that we had a local that we could go to. I love growing up in North Lawn. I loved it so much that when Jan and I started a family, we moved back to North Baldwin because it was a great place to bring up kids and also there's great schools there. Baldwin High in particular is a stellar school and uh, we moved into the area to be in the zone so that our kids could also go to Baldwin High. When you left high school or did you go to uni? No, I um, decided at my, my dad's urging and I should have stuck with it, maybe, Dad always said, follow the money. The money is where the money is. Get into finance, do economics, do commerce, do all of that, which is the path I took in high school. So where others headed off into the sciences or humanities, I did economics and accounting and that part of it with the intention of getting involved in banking, which I did fleetingly when I finished school. I got a job at the ANZ Bank, and it was while I was doing a training course in the city for the ANZ Bank that I happened to walk past 3AW in Latrobe Street one lunchtime. They had a sign in the front window that said uh, 3AW Radio School, Tuesday and Thursday nights, 12-week course, inquire within. I walked into reception to inquire within. I started at the radio school two weeks later. Three weeks after that, I was offered a job at 3AW as a panel operator. I quit my job at the bank after all of about two months, and I started at 3AW as a, um, as a panel operator. I was always interested in the technical side, operating uh, audio equipment, operating lighting equipment. I used to do sound and lighting for the school productions. I did a bit of work while I was still at school at uh, Camberwell Civic Centre, which just had the most amazing bio box. And I was really drawn to the geeky side, the technological side. I ended up being a panel operator until it occurred to me that the person on the other side of the glass was making a hell of a lot more money than I was at the time. So I thought I'd give that a shot, and I did. So the biggest question here is, how did Dad take that? Dad was fine. Oh, cool. Absolutely fine. So was Mum. I guess that speaks to what I mentioned before about Mum and Dad being quite progressive and, and, and very liberal in that regard. And what they wanted was what, we, what, what was best for us at the time, not what they thought was best for us. They certainly gave guidance. They offered opinions. But ultimately, they wanted us to make our own decisions, which is what we did. So at the time, which was 1971, I went from earning $44 a week at the ANZ Bank to earning $24 a week at 3AW as a power operator. Wow. <laughs> bought a house, bought a cart. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Turbin Brothers believe every life is unique. Every funeral should be too. 
visit turbanbrothers.com.au. Hi, this is Lee Simon, and you're listening to Gavin Woods Podcast. Now, you've had a stellar career, a stellar career in radio, which I'll get to very shortly. But uh, tell me, did you, uh, after the radio school, did you uh, do what most people did, like I did, uh, go into the country and do a, 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 your first radio stint at a country radio station? My first on-air stint, uh, I was allowed to read the 5.30 a.m. news at 3OW, so technically that was my first appearance on air. So there was squeaky-voiced me with no training, really, reading the 5.30 News, which was then followed by The Breakfast Show, Peter James, the first of the James family that I've worked with. I still work with his son, Darren, from time to time, and also his grandson, Michael James. So that's an interesting, for me, anyway, a little side note. Uh, But to go on air when, uh, you know, I worked out I wanted to do the on-air part as well, I moved to Bega. I was offered a job up there by a former 3AW panel operator who I knew before he headed off to Bega. He said, there's a job up here doing production and doing the occasional shift. So I moved up there. I didn't like it a whole lot, only because... I'd been told that Bega was a town of 30,000 people. I thought, that's okay, it's not Melbourne, but 30,000 people, it should be a hustling, busy city. And as I arrived in Bega on the bus from Melbourne, you know the uh, the little signs outside of a town that say, you know, welcome to, insert name of town, population, whatever, you know, Rotary Club, Lions Club, whatever. Population was 3,000. Somebody had added a zero. <laughs> and, and so, uh, bigger, which is a lovely town, but I was too young to appreciate what it was like at the time, it was a pretty lonely place. I very quickly bought a car. I used to drive down to Melbourne almost every weekend. Eight-hour trip down, eight-hour trip back up again, hang out with my mates on a Saturday night, stay up all night, and then drive back on Sunday. We used to do that, didn't we? We did, and country radio uh, was a fabulous way to start. From there, I went to 3DB very briefly in Melbourne for about three months as well, and I was offered a job in Hobart, so I went to 7HT in Hobart. And it was after Hobart that, for me, the most important part of my career began, which was as part of the Digamay world, uh, working at 2NX in Newcastle. Wasn't 2NX just, it was just a rock and radio station, wasn't it? I always say that you can drive into a city, go down the dial, and just from the production of the radio stations, know the number one and number two stations in town. Spot on, Gavin. And, and, And 2NX, and it's... Uh, a little bit further up north, uh, 2NM in Musselbrook, they were the starting point if you wanted to work at either 2SM or 3XY or 4IP or any of the other radio stations that were part of what was called the Digame Group. It wasn't owned by Digame, but it was programmed by one of the two most important people in my radio career, and I'm so happy that he was one of my mentors, a guy called Rod Muir, who worked with Trevor Smith and the late Jan Torv in consulting and programming these radio stations. And the, the benefit of being at 2NX was all the really good stuff that 2SM and 3XY had in terms of a programming philosophy, a staffing philosophy, the jingle packages, the attitude, the persona of the radio station. 2NX was where you wanted to be in order to end up at either 2SM or 3XY. 3XY in Melbourne was my dream destination. And after a, uh, a stint at 2SM, because I kept on knocking back offers from within to go to 2SM until I was told, 
uh, in no uncertain terms that if I didn't accept this offer, I would never get a chance to work at XY. So I did the sensible thing and accepted the offer at 2SM. Had a ball working in Sydney. They were crazy days. They really were. So much fun, outrageous, rebellious, all of those things. And then ultimately ended up at 3XY in 75. So over a very short period of time, I worked at a lot of radio stations and ended up at 3XY in 1975. I bet uh, mum and dad were so happy to hear you on 3XY. They certainly were. It was very difficult for them to listen to me in the other markets unless they were up very late at night. And you could pick up AM stations with this technical phenomenon known to very few people called skip, uh, where the uh, the signal would bounce off the clouds on a cloudy night and you could pick it up. Oh, look, I used to send tapes down and things like that. And when cassettes started as a format, I'd, I'd send cassettes down. But they were very proud of what I did. And apart from the fact that I was away from home, because we're a very tight-knit family, um, they were very pleased with the decision I made and, and how it progressed. Now, mate, you worked at, uh, of course, two of the biggest boss radio stations in the country, 2SM and 3XY. I mean, just the stories that you would have working for those radio stations and interviewing just the cream of the pop stardom around the world, you know, because the record companies would bring in all the big stars from around the world and the first port of call wouldn't be television stations, would be 2SM and 3XY. What was your biggest interview that you've, you've done in your career in, in rock music? It's a really difficult one to answer because I've been lucky enough to sit down with literally hundreds of artists along the way. The one that excited me the most was actually relatively late in my career when I was lucky enough to be chosen to go to London to interview Led Zeppelin. And that was 2012, thereabouts. It's when they released Celebration Day, which was their final album, the live double album. And there was a cinema release as well of that concert. So I went there and uh, interviewed John Paul Jones, the bass guitarist. And of course, I made a beeline for him. But also, uh, these were individual interviews. Jimmy Page as well, who's a genius and a very unusual man. And then the one that I probably enjoyed as much as I enjoyed the John Paul Jones one, was Robert Plant, who I interviewed at a pub down the road from where he lived in Primrose Hill. At the same time as I was sitting there really enjoying the conversation I was having with him, the other part of me, the uh, the rock fan part of me, was saying inside my head, I can't believe I'm sitting here, just me, Robert Plant, in a pub, having a chat. And I, I was thrilled to be able to do that, and I really enjoyed the result of those three interviews which ended up being used in many other parts of the world as well because they only allowed a handful of interviews. So there are versions of that interview that have ended up being with other languages spoken over the top of what it is that we were saying, which sounds quite unusual. Yeah, there's me and one of those three guys speaking in English and you can hear two Spanish voices, one being me and the other one being the person I'm talking to, which was kind of bizarre. It is interesting because that's what happened back then. Now with digital, they can cut in and out. But back then, if you know, as you say, a limited amount of interviews and uh, people would just get the footage and turn it into their own and try and make it their own, cutting you out and putting in, uh, you know, uh, putting in the uh, dialect of another country. And that was fine. That was okay. It didn't bother me at all. I got to speak to Led Zeppelin. There were lots of others along the way. Some that were memorable for the right reasons, and some that were 
memorable for the wrong reasons. Okay, let's get to Lou Reed then. Tell me the Lou Reed story. I love this story. Lou Reed is one of the good ones, uh, just in case anyone connects me saying for the wrong reasons. Lou Reed came to town. He had just released Metal Machine Music, which was a double album, which was his way of sticking it up the record company. He was obliged to do a certain amount of albums, so he recorded a double album, you know, back in the days of vinyl, two 12-inch vinyl discs, you know, disc one, side A, side B, etc., etc. And it was just white noise. It was just noise. Nothing melodic, no songs, no lyrics, no anything for anybody who's unaware of what that album was. That was him fulfilling his contractual obligation to deliver albums to the record company. So he was in a great mood when he turned up because he'd concluded his uh, arrangement with the record company and he came in for an hour to do an hour of him playing his own music, whatever it was that he wanted, on air with me. So he turned up with a, a, a little briefcase with a whole bunch of albums in it. Each album had a little piece of paper in it with, you know, side one, track four, or you know, whatever it happened to be. He had a list of the songs, sat down, settled into the chair. He uh, took out a jar of assorted pills from the briefcase, unscrewed the lid, poured out a handful randomly of, of pills, threw them in his mouth, threw them down with a glass of water, and away we went. And it was a great hour of radio. It really was. He was enthusiastic and effusive and a massive fan of music with an incredible knowledge, and he also understood the show part of show business. He clearly also understood the business part of it as well. And we did a great hour on air, and then we went out on the tear in Sydney for the night. Myself, a guy called Mike Drayson, who sadly passed away not long ago, who was the, um, the program director at the radio station at the time, and a massive Lou Reed fan. Uh, a woman by the name of Annie Wright, who worked for the record company, which was, I think, RCA Records. Lou and Lou's partner, who'd come out with him and was travelling with him, the beautiful Rachel, stunning brunette, and we went out on the town. And Sydney in the 70s was a wild and crazy town, and we found every wild and crazy spot, and we had a ball. And as the night progressed, it became crazier and crazier, and then innocent, naive kind of me, I think I was 21 at the time, all of a sudden noticed that the gorgeous Rachel at about four o'clock in the morning started to have a bit of a five o'clock shadow. And that's when the light bulb went off on top of my head and I thought, okay, I get it. Shaved her legs and he was a she. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and she was the muse. She was the inspiration behind all of that. And just lovely. We had a ball. It, it, it was a fabulous night and how we survived it, I'm not too sure. And thank goodness there were no mobile phones around in the 70s and 80s, otherwise you and I would still be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me about your stellar career at SM and XY, as I said, and then all of a sudden, a long-haired, lanky Lee Simon became a host of a rock show called Night Moves on the Seven Network. How did that all play out? Well, it kind of came together almost spontaneously and very quickly and out of the blue, Michael Godinsky, who was a mate, rang up one day and said, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, well, I'm on air. I think I was doing drive at the time. And he said, well, what are you doing after work? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm off air at six, I think it was, or seven, whatever it was. He said, come and pick me up. We're going to go to a meeting. And I went, oh, okay. 
So we went into Channel 7 and met with Gary Fenton, who was the um, content director of Channel 7 at the time, and a guy called Andrew McVitie. Long story short, Channel 7 had acquired some live concert footage as a part of a package of programs that it had bought from overseas, didn't know what to do with it. They figured there was about six or seven hours of material on there, and they wanted to do a show, a Friday night show, where we would highlight this music along with some video clips. This is 1977, so Countdown was already up and running and dominating as it deservedly did. And we went to air and were referred to as the alternate rock show. We played more album-oriented stuff compared to Countdown, which, as you know full well, Gavin, was more pop-driven. And pop's not a dirty word, just popular. So we did that. It was meant to last for seven weeks, but it was picked up very quickly by Sydney, and then Adelaide came on board, then Hobart came on board, then Brisbane came on board. And before we knew it, we had a live-to-air two-hour Friday night TV show, which was national, and we kind of made it up as we went along. Everybody who was involved in doing that show had a different role to play in television and hadn't done what they were doing. Well, with, with a few exceptions, but, you know, the, the floor manager was a cable dragger. The cable dragger worked in props. The, uh, the director's assistant worked in some other part of the building. So it was a whole bunch of 20-somethings, young 20-somethings. Uh, I think I was about 23 at, uh, by that stage. In a studio, making it up as we went along. And it worked really well. And it was a groundbreaking show. There were all sorts of innovations that we came up with and did because we didn't know that it couldn't be done. And so, you know, live concerts, we had a very good relationship with AAV. They were all recorded properly. TV until that stage had very little regard for audio. It was all about the pictures. We said it's all about the music. So there was some fabulous stuff that was done, mainly driven by Andrew McVitie, who was the producer. Gadinsky had the contacts to make it so in terms of artists, and he had the credibility with band management and such to get that done and the understanding of navigating the requirements of record companies. And so we stayed on air for, um, for quite some time. It finished at Channel 7, it moved to Channel 10 for a while, and then it ended up, a bit sadly, I think, as a Saturday morning show on Channel 9, which only lasted, I think, for one season, and we, we kind of were just joining the dots at that stage. It, it, it had run its course. Any song can be played at a funeral. What would you like? Visit tobinbrothers.com.au Hi, this is Lee Simon and you're listening to Gavin Woods Podcast. Well, from a television performer and a radio performer, uh, it, XY was, uh, was going well until the emergence of two speakers in stereo. Imagine hearing music in stereo on the radio and then progressively we all fell off 3XY and you and Jeff Campbell, day one, setting up Eon FM. How exciting was that? Uh, look, it was absolutely thrilling, and I, I have a, an endless debt of gratitude to Jeff, who I work with at XY, who rang me up one day. We were aware that the FM licences had been granted. I think that was December 1979. And the station, which became Eon FM, already had in mind a, um, a program director as well as other key personnel. And then Jeff rang up one day and said, hey, listen, the guy who was going to be the program director no longer is. 
I think you should apply for it. So I did, and the rest, as they say... (laughs) Yeah, of course. Now, how was it like getting a team of on-air personnel together? Because you became the program director, content director of the radio station. Well, again, it was something that I hadn't done before, but I think like anybody who works in any business, hopefully you also harbour ideas of what you would do if you were running it or if you were responsible for a particular part of it. And I had my thoughts and ideas of what sort of person I'd like to have on air on the radio station that I'd like to program. I started at the radio station along with maybe half a dozen other people in January of 1980 when we walked into an otherwise empty building at 43 Bank Street in South Melbourne. And six months later, it was a radio station with a record library and all the personnel and all the on-air people and all the um, the hopes and dreams of what it was that we wanted to do about to happen. The first year wasn't the smartest thing for us. We were heavily influenced by what FM radio meant in America, where it was more album-orientated and a little bit calmer and quieter than AM radio, which was very much the yelly, shouty, very active, high-rotation, popular kind of format that the AM radio stations had. We were a little bit too cool for the room, and we decided after 12 months that we needed to do something because we'd spent all the money and hadn't really achieved what it is that we wanted to do. And at that point, I bit the bullet and said, well, we need to actually play music that people want, not the music that we think they want. And so the station was kind of reborn to the shock and horror of some, but to the delight of others. In 1981, we changed the format, brought certain people into the uh, equation, including your very good self, and within a very short time, we were the number one radio station in Melbourne, which was uh, a source of great pride and vindication for the changes we made and the decisions we made. Now, let me take you back. Explain to me and everyone listening to this podcast, after all the hard work you put in setting up the radio station, being the first FM radio station in the country to go to air, tell me about those first 30 minutes. Well, we went to air at, I think it was either one second or one minute after midnight on the 11th of July, um, which at the time that we're recording this, Gavin, was 43 years ago last week. And Peter Grace uh, was already in the picture as our 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. jock. We had a full complement of on-air people. And in a very democratic decision, I thought, well, the guy who should be on air is the guy who's going to be on air at that time of the day every day, and that's Gracie. And uh, he started off in what was our temporary studio in that building while we were finishing up the uh, the proper studio. Uh, it was a room where we had Hessian bags covering the walls for soundproofing, and it was just bodged up together and gaffer taped together. Nobody would know, listening. And Gracie came on with his famous opening line, you know, welcome here. This is 92.3 EON-FM, as it was referred to at the time. It's the beginning of a long time, and we started off, 
Oh, God, you think, you think I'd know. We played two songs. One was New Kid in Town by the Eagles, and there was a Pink Floyd song that followed that as well. It must have been just an incredible feeling. It, it was surreal, Gavin. It really was. The, the period leading up to that, we had an objective. We knew what we were doing. We were aiming to be the first commercial FM radio station to be on air, and there was quite a, a healthy competition between us, the radio station which became The Fox, here in Melbourne and the stations that became Today FM up in Sydney and Triple M up in Sydney. And we beat them by a significant margin because we had really good people on the case and we knew what we were doing, we had a plan. And while we were confident and up and about and the chest out and with a bit of a swagger in the lead up to it, I think all of us looked at each other somewhat nervously going, oh shit, this is real. This is just about to happen. Gracie said what he said on air, and then there was a lot of jumping up and down and uh, hugging of each other and laughing and slapping each other on, uh, uh, on the back. And a significant amount of alcohol was consumed after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, all those years at Eon FM, rating successes, endless brilliant parties, because all other radio stations used to come to our parties at Eon FM, if you remember. Yes. So we knew how to party. Then it changes its name, gets bought out and becomes Triple M. Tell me about that. Well, Rod Muir, who I mentioned earlier in our chat here, was the man behind Triple M in Sydney. And once they were up and running, we were simpatico with them. We were, if I can use an Italian term, what they were all about and what we were all about was very similar. And I think there was an inevitability that at some point down the track, we would have a tilt at them or they would have a tilt at us, as in to buy us or to buy them. And that is what happened. We all bought Eon FM, changed it to Triple M, and away we went. Uh, some people stayed, some people left. Uh, I was one of the people that stayed. I had worked with Rod before, and he knew what I brought to the table, and he was obviously aware of what I'd been doing along with everybody else at Eon FM in the period leading up to him buying it. He knew who he wanted to keep and he also knew the people who he didn't think would be wholeheartedly involved in continuing the journey under new ownership and new management. So it was an exciting period. It was a, a little bit sad insofar as our name changed and uh, there was a bit of an identity crisis, I guess, that we had at the time, but that was fleeting. And we went on and have continued to go on in the time since then. So all that time at Triple M playing uh, still great rock music. And then you got the gong to set up football on an FM radio station, which is unheard of. How did that come about? Well, we were doing really well Monday to Sunday for six months of the year, every year. And it was the same pattern. And then, and I'm talking about Triple M in Melbourne specifically at this stage. And as the content director, it was pretty obvious to me why the arse fell out of the radio station on the weekends during the footy season. And that is our audience loves their footy and would desert us in the hundreds of thousands to go and listen to um, footy broadcasts on the AM radio stations, which carried AFL coverage. So it wasn't really a stroke of genius to work out what it was that was causing the problem. It was 
a bit of a tentative decision on my behalf that we should go for it and actually do live sport on the weekends because it was unprecedented. Nobody on the planet running an FM radio station had decided that let's mix rock music and sport. Yeah, bold move. And my thought was, and I alluded to this earlier on, our job is to provide the audience that we want with the content that we want. And if football is what our audience wanted during the AFL season, that's what we should be giving them. It wasn't an easy sell. And in fact, the first several times that I approached our board and other senior management with the idea of doing live AFL coverage, it was a very brief conversation. Famously, Peter Harvey, who I love dearly, who passed not that long ago as well, uh, and one of my two mentors in my career that I was lucky enough to work alongside, talks about the fact that the first conversation went for 30 seconds, I spoke for 29, and he spoke for one uh, with the answer no. And (laughs) it was understandable that that's what he would say because... It was unprecedented and there's a lot at stake if we were to get it wrong. I argued that there was a lot at stake, uh, 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 that the money got switched off for six months of the year for two days out of the seven every week. So the second year I had a crack at it again, I was given the go-ahead. I went and met with Wayne Jackson, who was the uh, CEO of the AFL at the time, had a very brief conversation with him. He was enthusiastic about it. I think he liked the idea of more competition in how the game would be uh, broadcast, the style in which it would be broadcast. He wanted an assurance that our audience wouldn't be pilfered from the existing radio stations. I offered him that assurance without really having anything to back up assurance and I said well we're going to be doing it differently apart from the fact that we're going to be using different people to the people who've been doing football in this town for a very long time it's also going to be in FM stereo and that's going to be revolutionary as far as listening to live sport is concerned you're in your car you're in your home and it sounds like you are at the venue full stereo full high fidelity audio And we brought a lot of new technology to the game as well. It was like the Starship Enterprise had landed uh, in the commentary box where Triple was assigned to Triple M, and it gave us facilities to do things which the others couldn't with the equipment that they had and the, um, the policies that they had. And we just had a ball doing what we did, and it led to more of our radio stations doing footy. Obviously, the other AFL states started picking up our AFL coverage. It was a success very quickly, and therefore our northern brothers and sisters decided to dip their toe in the water into NRL coverage and some AFL coverage, when it was their home team. You know, if Brisbane or the Gold Coast were playing, our Brisbane stations would take those AFL calls. Likewise, uh, Sydney, when they were playing, our Sydney stations would, and when GWS came on board as well. And then cricket came into the equation. So Triple M these days is a hybrid of 
what's referred to as the three pillars of the format, which is rock, sport and comedy. And somehow that all kind of merges together and makes some sort of sense. Well, Lee, you are a visionary. What a stellar career. And you decided to retire after a very lengthy career in radio in 2018. And uh, you were inducted into the Hall of Fame at the Australian Commercial Radio Awards. Uh, I bet you're so proud of that. That's a great honour to get. Proud and in equal proportions a bit bewildered because um, I'm certainly aware of the, uh, at the time, the previous inductees, and they were, uh, in the majority of cases, my heroes in radio. And this isn't sort of false humility or anything like that. I don't know that I felt that I was sort of their equal at the time. Uh, I was very pleased uh, to be honoured in that way. But to be completely frank, uh, for me, there was, I don't know, a little bit of the imposter syndrome in there. It's kind of like, do I really deserve this? You know, when Yes, you do. Well, well, that's what other... And I've kind of come to terms with that. <laughs> um, but... Uh, honestly, and I think you know me pretty well. Uh, in fact, you know me better than, than many others. I'm not the sort to blow my trumpet a whole lot. I'm doing this because it's you. It's not the sort of thing that I would I would ordinarily do. And I'm very pleased uh, with my life in retirement. Uh, I still have a fondness for the radio industry. I, I'm a keen observer of what goes on there. I'm fascinated with the path that it now needs to take and has already started to take. Radio as a broadcast medium has got a lot of competition and smartly the smart operators have realised that the business now is to create content and radio is one of the ways in which that content is delivered but obviously the uh, what is generally referred to as the, the digital space whether it's podcasts or other forms of streaming or this that or the other are the other methods of delivery of that content. And ultimately, there's going to be another, I think, seismic change in how the industry operates and will continue to evolve as it always has. Lee Simon, you're a fine example to all of us. Well played, a job well done. Enjoy life in retirement and thanks for your time today, mate. Hey, thanks. Have an appreciate it greatly. This podcast brought to you thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives every day of the year.